Hey, this is Paul Gilmartin from the Mental Illness Happy Hour, and you are listening to The Soul of Life. And if you happen to turn it off, your life will cease to work. So uh, pay attention. He knows what the fuck he's doing. When you walk into the National Geographic Visitor Center on the south rim of the Grand Canyon, you're greeted by an immense map of the Grand Canyon. That's John Anarino's map. I actually did it by hand on a huge USGS topographical map. It's probably four feet by five feet. And I had my post-its on it where the photos went. He said, let's publish this. And it went from the magazine to the Visitor Center. John Anarino is a legendary photographer and adventure author whose photographic works have appeared in Time and Life magazines, The New York Times, National Geographic Adventure, and Scientific American, among many others. I became a Colorado River boatman. I was taught by a boatwoman how to row the Grand Canyon of the Colorado River to go with the flow. Where's the current? What's the current going to do? What if you're not where you think you're going to be? What are you going to do next? John and I speak today about the highlights in his long and distinguished career. But we also talk about some of the rough, difficult paths, some nearly costing his limb or life, and how a tortured path can sometimes lead to spectacular vista and the recovery of our spirit. It was about a nearly fatal fall rock climbing. I fell, and the bottom of my left foot was facing me. The orthopedic surgeon looked at it, he shook his head, and says, it's got to come off. John's not a person who likes to be in the spotlight and only agreed to speak with me off camera. We talk about his grueling turnaround from near amputee to desert ultramarathoner, touched on in a book every distance runner should have on their shelf, his 1992 Running Wild. I was running at the time to train about 300 miles a month, sometimes 400. That's not a lot. Anarino is believed to have run the longest wilderness ultramarathon ever, covering 750 miles of daunting Arizona and wilderness from Mexico to Utah. He shares his love of nature, the story of native people's travel through it, and his stunning photography from decades of finding the perfect exposure for the most remote and most beautiful and rugged landscapes and its inhabitants. The sunrise squeaked through, and there was one photograph, and the lights were turned off afterward. Welcome to Season 3 of The Soul of Life. I'm Keith Miller, and this is Episode 1, John Anarino and America's Outback. I'm Keith Miller, and my podcast, The Soul of Life, is here to help you remember who you really are. I'll bring together people who have gotten off their treadmills. I'll have conversations with athletes, musicians, doctors, scientists, healers, and entrepreneurs to discuss the fascinating edges of our knowledge in neurobiology, psychology, and physics. This is The Soul of Life. Have you ever been in a position where you know that you or your family member really needs emotional support or marriage enrichment, but you find out how expensive it is to get access to high-quality, out-of-network professionals? 
Well, I've created the Soul of Life community just for this. At community.souloflifeshow.com, you can join for free and be part of a network of caring and supportive people having conversations that can bring healing to your soul. It's there that you'll find access to psychoeducational courses to deal with stress, anxiety, and relationship conflict. For example, right now I'm offering a seven-week immersive course for couples called Mindful Marriage that walks people through a mindfulness-based stress reduction curriculum I designed that really gives couples in conflict a map towards stability, trust, and deeper intimacy. Just go to community.souloflifeshow.com, check out the courses, and join for free to be part of the Soul of Life community of learners and soul seekers. John Anarino is a photographer, author, and adventure author of books, photographic essays, and calendars of the American West and Old Mexico. His work has appeared in Time, Life, The New York Times, National Geographic Adventure, Scientific American, Arizona Highways, Unknown Mexico, and the best-selling book, America 24-7, Extraordinary Images of One American Week. His illustrated map, The Grand Canyon Explored, is on display at the Grand Canyon National Geographic Visitor Center. John has dedicated his life to photographing, researching, and writing about endangered landscapes, native peoples, western cowboys, Spanish traditions, and the trilingual borderlands. In his quest to explore the great southwests and the Grand Canyon's mythic landscapes and secret places by foot, raft, rope, camera, and probably lots of other ways. In the deserts, John has climbed hallowed peaks, rafted wild and scenic rivers, traversed deep chasms and painted deserts, and traced ancient Indian missionary and pioneer trails on foot. His award-winning books in photography include National Geographic Adventure, Sierra Club's Canyons of the Southwest, and In the Chasms of Water, Stone, and Light, among other distinguished publications. Well-known for his fleet-footed explorations and adventures, John is believed to have run the longest wilderness ultramarathon ever, covering 750 miles of daunting Arizona wilderness from Mexico to Utah. John, it's great to hear your voice. How are you doing today? Excellent. Thank you very much. It's a nice balmy day in the Sonoran Desert of Arizona. It's going to be a uh, mid-90s with a, a cool breeze. Somebody won't acknowledge if that's a cool breeze, but if you're acclimated, that's relatively cool. It's, what, it's, it, it's all what you're used to, isn't it? What you acclimate yourself to. Right. I, I'm excited to speak with you because, uh, as I shared with you, your your book here I'm holding in my hand, the, Hiking the Grand Canyon, a detailed guide to more than 100 trails, which I understand is now in the fifth edition. I'm holding the fourth edition here. The fifth um, edition, actually. Fifth, oh, this is the fifth? Correct. Or, yeah. And I, you know, I was introduced to you because I was interested in taking my son on the Grand Canyon hike. We planned it for two years and then finally got to do it last March, right before COVID. Really, COVID had just shut down everything, John. And, uh, and yet we, we had had this trip planned, as I'm sure you can relate. You've, when you have your sights set on something and everything's packed and you've trained, we wanted to go. So we got into a plane and we, uh, we didn't know if we were going to come back. While we were hiking, we hiked rim to rim to rim, about 42 miles down and back over five days. Um, we were just glad to see airplanes. We, were, we wanted a, a plane back. We didn't want to have to drive back. <laughs> so your, your book has helped probably thousands of people navigate uh, the South America, Southwest and other places, the Grand Canyon especially. Um, 
I'm curious, you have a new book coming out, America's Outback, an Odyssey Through the Great Southwest, that I was privileged to take a look at. Tell me about that work and the journey you went on to create that new adventure. Uh, America's Outback um, uh, features and uh, documents uh, uh, land what I call uh, off the grid, in the back of beyond. It is far from civilization and uh, uh, heavily trod uh, nature trails that you can get. And it's um, it uh, highlights those uh, the remotest places that I've been in the great Southwest, including uh, the United States and Mexico. You've done a lot of adventure uh, and, and a lot of it on foot yourself. Um, how do you, how do you find yourself on some of these trails? What, what do you, how do you organize some of your, your planning where you want to go? Uh, research, go into the library, look at the maps, uh, 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 rumor, where's the best place to go or the, the most daunting place to go and, Go from there, but I, I, I'm very meticulous about my planning. Uh, the, uh, the amount of water you need to carry, where the water is on the ground. Uh, many people go into the desert and they don't know where uh, water, the natural water holes are, and it's incumbent upon people uh, uh, in the desert and in the Grand Canyon. Where, where are the emergency water sources? Where, where can I um, get them? Apart from the Colorado River, right, which can take a, a day to to let settle and then possibly clog up all of your filters. And what was your water uh, consumption? Um, we we went through easily over the course of maybe eight miles, probably three, probably close to four liters. And that was, but the temperatures were nice, John. It was you know cold at the top. We went through a snowstorm in in Sedona on our way. And uh, walked down in, in in yak tracks because of the ice and snow, and it was probably thirty one degrees. Get down to Indian Garden, and it's you know sixties. You know, right. and then by the time we're in the box, it's seventies. That's in March. Now, now, how hot does the box, which is the inner canyon on the corridor route, how how hot does that get during I, July, for example? Uh, you're looking at. Uh... A uh, couple of factors, maybe the air temperature is 110 degrees. You have the refracted heat off the uh, the Vishnu schist walls. The ground temperature can reach a scorching 140 to 160 degrees. And also the radiation of the sun on, say, for example, an uncovered head or neck. Those are all factors that um, uh, tend to wear down people very quickly. And you like to get to these remote exposures. Um... Why is that? Well, number one, nobody, uh, generally nobody has been there before or photographed the area. It's a, a extremely unique point of view. And, you know, to be the first or the second or the third to photograph these extraordinary landscapes from an aerial or a raptor's point of view. One of my favorites in your book is, uh, as the caption reads, the first light washing across the mesas and spires of what Navajo traditionalists call clearings among the rocks in Monument Valley. Uh, in that instance, about the, in the uh, Monument Valley, I had uh, waited, I think, five days uh, for the weather to turn, and I was already set up um, at, my, at the scenic location I wanted to photograph, and the light was ab- absolutely abysmal. 
and the sunrise squeaked through and there was one photograph and the lights were turned off afterward. Mm. You had your little window of chance. I, to I, it. it was maybe 20 seconds. Wow. Yeah. And you're in the right place at the right time. You put yourself in these places. Well, and, you have and, you have to actually uh, study where you want to go, where the best photo spots are, apart from the really remote locations, and be there uh, before sunrise and stay there until after sunset. And in your relationship to the land, I'm curious about, John, your study of ancient lands and the ancient peoples, uh, what, what that has taught you about our place in the world, our relationship to it. I've always been concerned uh, when traveling, whether it's in the United States or Mexico, that the indigenous names of the different uh, landmarks, uh, springs, creeks, shrines, uh, they've been largely uh, erased from the landscape or they've been forgotten or uh, they've been anglicized. And so I made a concerted effort. Uh, I make a concerted effort to wherever I'd like to travel what did the well, this particular indigenous tribe, how, uh, indigenous people, how did they view the landscape? What were their names? What were the translations? Why isn't that on the map? Why are, don't people write about that? That's kind of a specialty of mine. That I, I'm, I'm proud that I can uh, gather that information and disseminate it for the public. Tell me a little bit about how your adventure photography and your art became your passion and profession. What did you always know you wanted to do photography? Uh, no, I didn't. And uh, uh, I was an outdoor educator for three or four years, and I led hundreds of students um, across the stunning landscapes of the great Southwest, Arizona in particular at the time. And I always had a camera uh, dangling around my neck, my faithful Nikon, as some people call it. And I, it was just a gift to be able to photograph uh, the students and clients uh, in the process of uh, overcoming a challenge, hiking, climbing, et cetera, et cetera, and using the landscape as a backdrop for their, their own adventures. And later I became a Colorado River boatman, and which was just a joy. It was extraordinary for me. And I was taught actually by a woman, a boat woman, how to row, how to row uh, the Grand Canyon of the Colorado River, which was a, a joy because men have a, a tendency to uh, muscle problems at times, and I was among them. And she literally taught me how to go with the flow. Where's the current? What's the current going to do? What if you're not where you think you're going to be? What are you going to do next? And that was actually a valuable life lesson moment for me. You have a plan and. It doesn't go the way you think it's it's going to go. What's plan B? And uh, during that um, formative period for me on the Colorado River, there was a point, um, I think it was the 19th or 20th trip, which seems like a lot of Colorado River trips. There are boatmen and women that have 100 trips behind them. And mm -hmm. I thought, is there anything else? And it, it came to me, well, I really want to, pursue my passion as a photographer and, and I took it from there and moved on. You shared with me that you had a, an experience with a life picture editor who took you under his wing and schooled you. And Can you share about that? Uh, sure. Uh, I had known a, a, a really talented uh, woman photojournalist 
And she had pitched a story to life. She sent in the images and uh, they rejected it. And I said, whoa, wait a second. And I, I told her, I said, I'm going to fly to New York Sunday, get, take the red light to New York and go. And I had never been to New York. And um, I, I knocked on, I, I, uh, I passed through security in the Time Life building. And surprisingly, the picture editor let me up. I was stunned. And he said, John, uh, you're the first photographer that's come across country to defend a story that's already been rejected. Here's the carousel. Put the slides in there, and I'll take a look at them. And he did, and his editor said, uh, you know, we're not going to use this story. And I was stunned. But walking through the halls of the 30, I think it was the 37th floor, the rarefied air, this is what I want to be. How do I pursue that? So I returned home and I pestered him with story ideas for the next two years. And I finally got my, uh, my shot. Um, he, he wanted me to photograph, not an outdoor trip. He wanted me to photograph a prom in Taos, New Mexico for a, a cover story about a prom night in the United States. And that was my beginning. Wow. He even told me, John, bring me one photograph. I'll find it. And it was the opening photo. You uh, are the the author of the the Visitor Center map on the South Rim. It's a gigantic map that takes up the entire for, foyer of the of the visitor center on the South Rim. Everybody sees it when you when you walk in there. Can you tell me the story of how that came to be and what it's meant to have your work displayed there? Obviously I'm very proud that my uh, work is uh, showcased as a wall mural and the National Geographic Visitor Center. I mean, that's the, the career high point. Um, the making of the map was a different matter. For years, I uh, I love maps. You know, people. Some of the people that I know, they try and ask a question that doesn't avoid me pulling out a map or drawing a <laughs> sketch of where they are. Well, you're coming out the east door, and you're going to be walking west, and then you're going to turn north. Um, those kinds of things. Uh, to back up a step. Um, when I first got into running, I I always wanted to follow uh, different Native American trails across uh, across the Southwest Arizona, and uh, so I did my research. What were the what were the anthropologists and ethnologists? They were actually mapping trade routes of how glycimerous um, shell got from the Gulf of California to Chaco Canyon in northern New Mexico. And I soon learned there were there was a labyrinth of different types of trade routes, uh, whether it was from the Gulf of California or the coast of California, and uh, that went to these different uh, trade centers and different uh, Native American villages, and, and that there were incipient, incipient uh, no longer visible trails that actually pieced together the uh, how the shell got from. Again, the Gulf of California that got to Chaco and other places. So that was my that was part of my base of learning. Uh, after that, I focused on the Grand Canyon and a different uh, the trails. For example, the many of the trails in the Grand Canyon they were uh, first used by ancestral Puebloans, the Navajo, the Hopi, Paiute, and they were later uh, forged into a, a, a mule or a burrow type trail by 
the Grand Canyon's prospectors and miners and later tourists. And so I started to piece together uh, th those trails, the explorations of you know, people like uh, photographer John K. Hillers, who was with the Powell's, John Wesley Powell's Second Colorado River Expedition. Uh, and so it's, it, it started to blossom as, okay, this is, uh, this is a first go at this kind of map. Mm. It, it took a, quite a bit of time. I actually uh, did it by hand on a huge uh, USGS uh, topographical map. It's probably four feet by five feet, and I had my post-its on it where the photos went, et cetera, et cetera, and, and uh, went from there. I had, uh, wow. I pitched a story to uh, founding editor-in-chief uh, John Rasmus at National Geographic Adventure, and from his response, he hadn't seen anything like it before, and he said, let's publish this. And it went, it went from the magazine to the visitor center. As I mentioned, our trip, 42 miles, John, rim to rim to rim. Um, you know, I had this heavy backpack. Um, people who, who may wonder, how do you, how do you do it for multiple days? And especially in the winter, you, well, you have to take some gear that you may not, may or may not need, namely for, for warmth. So I had a 63 pound backpack. My son was with me and he, his backpack, he's a lot, he was 14 at the 13 at the time, 14. This was a lot lighter. Um, but you know, we're, we're going along and you know, the most memorable part of that, John, was laying under the stars, uh, at Phantom Ranch or Cottonwood Campground. And, and, and the, the, of course, the narrowness that you, you see, you don't get to see the whole horizon because it's just a, a window above the canyon that you're looking straight up. But the, the brightness of those stars was something I'll never forget. We took two books with us. Well, was that technically on my Kindle, so I probably took about 500 books with me. But the two that I was reading um, were, one was uh, by a geologist named Marsha uh, Bjornerud. And I interviewed her in an earlier podcast that a lot of people may appreciate as we're speaking about the Grand Canyon. Her book was called Timefulness. Um, and the other was The Emerald Mile, which is one of my favorite books. It's a breathtaking parallel account of the legendary speed record, it's really two accounts. It's an account of this speed record in the history of these wooden dories um, and the oars, men and women rowing down the Colorado's rapids. But during the flood, and this flood overwhelmed the Glen Canyon Dam and practically breached it. And it, simultaneously, the book talks about the, the water... Um, environment, so the, the, the movement of the U.S. In Department of Interior to put dams on every dam near, uh, right. navigable waterway. And that was happening in the 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, and in, in the environmental movement that sprung up to, to oppose it and to, and to save what we now have in some of the parts of the Grand Canyon. Um, and it talks about a man named Kenton Grua. He was one of the, the, the guides, and he was known, I suppose it was affectionately, as the factor. People talked about him Correct. as having such intense energy, and he, he would actually run these routes. Uh, you're, you're quite a trailblazer on foot as well. Your book is Running Wild, an Extraordinary Adventure from the Spiritual World of Running. Um, so you, you actually ran some of the routes, perhaps, that someone like Kenton Grua might have been running. Can you tell me about Tell us about Running Wild in that book, 1992. 
Please take the time now to subscribe to The Soul of Life wherever you're listening. Give it a thumbs up or write a positive review. It was about a nearly fatal fall rock climbing uh, on Rotten Rock. A handhold pulled off. I fell. Uh, I think it was 40 feet. And the next thing I knew, I was swinging from the rope. My blare held me securely. And the bottom of my left foot was facing me. And this isn't good. And I said to my climbing partner, lower me down carefully. He called in uh, an ambulance. They wheeled me into the ER. The orthopedic surgeon looked at it. He shook his head and says, it's got to come off. And I, I, I passed out. Fortunately, my mother was there and she wouldn't have, she wouldn't have it. And uh, I came to a little while later and the, the orthopedic surgeon and uh, three other people. Um, the orthopedic surgeon, he was a, a big man. And he was on one side and three other assistants were on my feet. And they had to pull my leg to reduce, reduce the ankle. Yeah, and it was just horrifying. And I, mm-hmm. at the time, I was, I, I was targeted on becoming a Himalayan climber. Mm-hmm. And uh, they released me from the hospital, still uh, trying to uh, plead with, still plead with me. Let's just take the foot off. And I thought, wait a second, I only got two of these. Yeah. And it's not gonna, like a lizard t- lizard's tail. It's going to grow back. So. I I endured I think uh, six to eight months of uh, crutching and uh, crawling on my hands and knees in my apartment in, in my apartment trying to overcome the the, the enormous pain mm-hmm. and um, you know I I didn't take the drugs that they prescribed I wanted you know they they gave me some type of painkillers in the the hospital and. That didn't take away the pain. Well, okay, now I'm numb, but it still hurts like hell. After about eight months of that, um, I made it a goal that I was going to uh, uh, crutch up a local peak. Uh, at the time, it was called Squ- uh, Squaw Peak, which is a derogatory name, and it's now called Piestua Peak after a famous Hopi woman soldier. And I set my goal to crutch to the top of the mountain, and it was no easy deal. And I, uh, I don't know how long it took me, but I finally made it to the top. And I could see the horizon of the Valley of the Sun and all the mountains I'd hiked on before. I said, this is it. I'm going to get this done. And I, I don't have the exact, exact timeline for me, but after about a year and a half, I started slowly jogging. Hmm. And I went further and further. And I was out on the uh, the Pima now called the Akimelo Autumn uh, uh, Reservation. And that's where I ran day in and day out. And the more I ran, the better it got. And I went in for a, a, a checkup and the docs couldn't believe it. it hey, where's that, where's that foot we wanted to cut off? Well, here it is, doc. So, and one thing proceeded to the next. I started running the trails that I had taken my students down and then uh, kept expanding my horizons. And these were long runs. They became long runs because I wanted to, to to actually run some of the indigenous trails in Arizona and California and uh, northern Sonora to to 
immerse myself in the landscape and the spirit of the people who uh, who first uh, lived and traveled there. I was running at the time to train about 300 miles a month, sometimes 400. That's not a lot. And uh, it's a, almost a full-time occupation. And so, I, you know, I, I went back to study the Grand Canyon on a map, map, and I did what I call pre-visualization. Okay, where are you going to go? Well, I'm going to go from the North Rim down to Nankweep, very dangerous trail, Nankweep Trail, across the Butte Fault, which was pioneered by uh, cattlemen and horses uh, at the, uh, earlier. So I, 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 I divided the Grand Canyon uh, into sections. And this, this run was within the, the boundaries of the uh, original National Park, the Grand Canyon National Park boundaries. And I segmented the Grand Canyon. How would Himalayan climbers view the problem? And there was, in the early days, they always called uh, a route up a mountain the problem. How do we get up the northeast ridge of Everest? Well, that's the problem. They view the, the canyons of the southwest as inverted mountain ranges. And whoa, that's the way to look at it. So mm -hmm. we, if we pull the Colorado River up to the summit and show the topography down to the rims, there's your inverted mountain. Yeah, and, you know, there was nobody to come get me. I had um, a support crew who uh, came in at four locations on what I estimated to be a 250-mile run. And um, fortunately, I, thanks to their support, I, I, I made it. But it wasn't, uh, I, con I considered it alpine style. I wasn't lugging gear up from an advanced space camp on Everest and right. setting up different camps, coming up and down, reclaiming the route over and over ago. It was a one-shot deal. Largely no trails. I had to uh, uh, choose the route literally as I ran. Where am I going? Stop, look over the cliff. Can I get down that? Uh, I'll try it kind of thing. Yeah, people really should get the book, Hiking the Grand Canyon, Detailed Guide, More Than 100 Trails. There's a lot of a lot of books about, a lot of guidebooks on the Grand Canyon, and yours is one of the most prominent, I think, and and, and covers a great deal of not just the routes, but the history. And and the and I think that's important for us to know as we're going out. Where where are we actually going? Where did Native Americans travel through the Grand Canyon? And for each one of those trails or routes, I could place Paiute, Hopi, uh, Havasupai, Navajo, Dene. Where they actually traveled in the Grand Canyon? Why they traveled there? What they call it? What was the name? What were the names? How are they translated? And that was really my mission that, okay, this is pulling back the curtain that so long, I think, especially in the Grand Canyon and other national parks, they're really anglicized. And we have, it's a lost knowledge that nobody knows. And that's what I was trying to unveil. And I hope, I think I came close to unveiling the, uh, the lost or hidden knowledge of native peoples in the Grand Canyon. Not only that, John, but the what you call the biogeography, the life zones of the Grand Canyon, the the flora and the fauna, what people can expect. I mean that there's there's so much uh, life in the desert. Can I ask you a question? Yeah, you jumped in Bright Angel Creek in January. Yeah, you did. Oh yeah, good for you. Oh yeah, 
we had just done, uh, you know, the, I think it was about 14 miles from Cottonwood up to the North Rome and, and then back. It was probably about seven up and seven down. And, uh, you know, I didn't take enough fuel, John. So when I, I was getting up to the top and of course we got into snow and, you know, some of our snowshoe, these things called yak tracks, one of them came undone and was, almost made me go head over down the trail because it's this wire sticking out of my boot. And so I, I just wanted to collapse and lay down. At one point, I didn't, it didn't have enough uh, energy. So that's what my advice. We, we took lighter packs because we were, we were going up and down back to our camp. By the time I got back to Cottonwood, you know, we, we made it in, in time. The sun was still out. I said, I've got about 30 minutes. That sun is, is, is right on the, and of course we're right next to the Bright Angel Creek and this is meltwater coming right down. And yeah, I said to my son, let's do it. So we both, we both jumped in and I tell you, it's great for swelling and you're in, you know how cold that water is, but it probably felt like 39 degrees. Well, you probably was that anyway. The, uh, the Colorado River, uh, when it flows out of Glen Canyon Dam, it averages a low 40. So if you're, in there swimming, or you get thrown out of a raft, and you don't have your life vest buckled properly, you've got two or three minutes to get saved. You know, or it's adios. Yeah, um, yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah, we found a nice little little place. We had our feet in there first for a little while. And we said, "This feels nice." I said to my son, "Let's do it." Full, full, full bore. <laughs> Good for you. Well, you know, I, I, I can imagine you that laying on your back in the. Uh, sleeping bag and staring up at the the sliver or the eyelid of starlight and it's just to me that's always been an extraordinary view and i think those kinds of views and uh, your uh, cold water uh, bathing those are the kinds of things that i that i've always felt set my spirit free so i imagine that how it happened to you and your son and that's you know that's the beauty of all that rigor you went through to climb what did you climb you climbed 20,000 feet and descended 20,000 feet there, plus yeah. or minus? Thereabouts, yep. yeah. So in, you're, in over four days. So Those are those are Everest-level elevation gains, though not at that, uh, not at that altitude. Right. But right. If, you're, if, you're, if you're coming from the east and you're hiking to the bottom of the Grand Canyon and going back up, you're going up to about 7,000 feet. So you have the altitude factor. Mm-hmm. That also contributes to uh, your fatigue or a person hiker's uh, fatigue in the Grand Canyon. Right. So this is your words in America's Outback. You write, I picked the dreariest of cloudy days, not by choice, but to search out the best vantage to photograph the pure white dunes. Taking a bead on the heart of the dunes, I walked 15 minutes. I checked my bearings. I walked 30 minutes checked my bearings again, and walked 60 minutes. I stopped and turned around. I felt I'd fallen through the soul of nowhere, where only the wind and spirit sang. I watched the breeze whisk away my footprints. They were my lifeline. I'd kept my eye on the horizon line. But once I started taking photographs, I started to lose my bearings. It was dizzying. I reoriented a distant peak over my left shoulder and trudged north through the dunes until I reached the park road two hours later. I missed my truck by a quarter mile, but I made it out at last. 
I could have gone in another direction. And then where would I have ended up? Lost in a cloudscape, searching for a trail without beginning or end. That's a beautiful passage, John. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's profound to me. I mean, the the you write about this wandering, uh, thinking that you know where you're going, heading out there, and maybe the bravado, I suppose, of of what we do in our life, thinking that we know something. As humans, we get out there and turn around and realize we're confronting something that's bigger than us, and and find ourselves afraid, uh, seeing ourselves disappear, and the terror of that, walking through life's uh, passages of losses and griefs, perhaps maybe in my work as a, as a counselor, um, seeing that as the root of, of suffering for all of us, um, to be, to be um, challenged by this fear of losing. Um, what gives you hope? What makes you keep looking for the next horizon? What makes you, uh, you know, take up running after your ankle probably should have been amputated or could have been amputated? What, what gives you, what helps you figure out where you belong next? My, my disposition, I have a sunny disposition. Every day brings another day of hope, no matter the next morning always brings that uh, ray of hope, no matter how bad or poorly the previous day has gone. I've always looked to the sun and to the horizon um, as hope for me. Uh, I pray. Um, I try and treat my fellow man as uh, the way I want to be treated. I hope people get your book. It's coming out July 29th. It's called America's Outback, and it is a stunning visual of America's Southwest. Thank you so much, Keith. It's uh, been an honor and a privilege to speak with you. Hey, I've started a community for Soul of Life fans interested in talking about episodes or getting more information about some of my teaching on IFS, mindfulness, and relationship growth. Head on over to community.souloflifeshow to get access to this group of really cool people just like you who care about the show and want to talk about episodes or or hear more, get access to courses, and, and support each other through life. That's what this is all about. Please leave an iTunes rating for the show and subscribe now wherever you listen to get more soul in your life. I like it and it's not harsh to my eardrum. All right, I will go. 